If you're suffering from stress, anxiety, lack of sleep, inflammation, pain management, kind of like I am pretty much all the time, I highly encourage you to check out cocanacare.com. And that's C-O for Colorado. It's a Colorado-based company, Canna, C-A-N-N-A, care.com. They make incredible CBD oil that's derived from all natural, high-quality industrial hemp. It's legal in all 50 states and is USDA certified 100% organic. And there's absolutely no THC content in the oil. It's non-GMO and contains no heavy metals or pesticides. They've been gracious enough to help support us during this time. So if you're wanting to try CBD oil for any of those reasons I mentioned and a lot more on their website, I highly encourage you just to give it a shot. Check it out. Go to CoCanna care.com and again that's c-o for colorado c-a-n-n-a care.com man we're talking to him for quite a while and we said yeah we're so glad to be here in santa marta he goes this is not santa marta we're like what do you mean he goes he says no santa marta's way around the way around the coast down there we said what's this place it's not even on our map he goes oh no they don't have that on the map this is where all the drugs come in This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Hey folks, hope you had a good weekend. We've got a great episode today. Um, this is the episode I, I was having some trouble with the audio, so some of the recording might be a little weird, because I but I tried to clean it up as best I can. It's an awesome interview with Dana Starkel and a little bit about their story, as you saw in the title. Longest canoe trip ever. They have the Guinness World Record for it, and so to, to kind of just summarize, Dana at 19, his brother Jeff, who is a little older, I believe, and uh, their dad, Don, they all left in a, literally a canoe from Winnipeg where they lived and pieced together this incredible route down the Mississippi, along the Gulf of Mexico, to go from their home in Winnipeg all the way to the mouth of the Amazon River. It was a 12,181-mile journey, and it took two years. <laughs> They were uh, inducted to the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame uh, for for the experience, and and is just obviously a, pr- a pretty unique episode for us to, to to talk to someone who's been on such a long journey. You know, we have had a lot of travelers who've been gone for for long periods of time, but this this was really hardcore, hard going. Uh, r- really reminded me of the old time. You know, you know, before we knew where everything was and, and and how far everything was and all that, before the world was really discovered, this, this reminds me of one of those expeditions. Um, but I hope you enjoy. Dana's got just a wonderful perspective on life and uh, plays classical guitar for a living and just has a really cool, interesting story altogether. So uh, please enjoy. And also, you know, we're running um, a cross-promotion with a podcast called... Uh, plane crash podcast so that's what you hear at the beginning of the episodes that'll be for you know a handful of episodes or so and we're going to have some new ads coming on soon so uh, just prepare you for all that but uh yeah keep keep listening keep enjoying and keep sharing i hope you're being inspired so uh and and this came from a listener suggestion also so if you got anybody you want to see on the show 
please reach out. I usually follow up day of or uh, within the week of of folks that people suggest who I think would make a good guest. So Dana came from a listener's suggestion. So thank you to uh, who suggested that. I'm sure you, I don't know if you're tired of talking about these these experiences or not, but uh, just pretty intriguing. Someone reached out and said you need to be on, and so I, I wanted to I wanted to have you after doing research on your on your experience. That's cool. You know, I really don't get tired of talking about it. The funny thing is, as the years go by, the experience, in a sense, kind of keeps on evolving. You know how how so? Well, the thing is, you, you because you're. Ref- you know, I, I created a word years ago. Um, there's a little town not far from here, a little town called Nauvoo. And um, and, I, and I'd been thinking about this concept for quite some time. And I said, you know, there's really not a word for the concept where a human perspective changes. Like we have deja vu, right? Right. You know, where it's a false memory of, of something that feels like you've done it before, but you haven't, right? But it's like, you know, if you go, for example, back and visit your old elementary school, when you're a teenager and you see that everything is giant size or everything is shrunk, I should say. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, it didn't shrink. It's just your perspective of it changed, right? That's and very so, interesting. Wow. Call that Dana Vu. I put my name in there. <laughs> and, and, uh, but that's, that's Dana Vu is my concept of anything that changes. Oh, it's altered because of your perspective has changed. So, so let me ask you, how, how has your perspective changed around, maybe around this journey that you experienced, you know, so long ago now? I would say just about everything, Mason, you know, because like, you know, you could pick any subject and, and it's evolved, it's changed. Like, if you look at when, like, I was 19 years old when I left. So, you know, <laughs> you know, you're a, you're a young adult, but for all intents and purposes, you're a kid, right? Definitely, definitely a kid, I would say. And so the thing is, you know, you go off with this sense of, you know, I, it wasn't that I had some, you know, feeling of immortality or anything like that. I thought felt invul, you know, vulnerable to what was going to happen. I knew there were a lot of dangers they had, but but there's no way that I could perceive the dangers in the way that my dad did. You know, so like when we left on day one, I my my mind is filled with the ideas of of monkeys hanging from trees and stuff someday. And my dad's thinking, what on earth have I got my myself and my kids into? I can only imagine, man. Um, you know, that's interesting you say that because looking at old interviews and stuff, he he, does, he seems to have this unending confidence. Uh, but but you're saying that underneath it all, he, he did have this feeling of what the heck did I get myself into? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he the whole trip, I mean, and I didn't understand this either when we left because it wasn't something he really shared with us, you know. Um, he was actually looking for something that would defeat him. Well, what, what do you mean, like something that, that gave him a reason to say maybe, you know, like, we can't do this or, or, or an excuse not to go? No, he wanted something that would show his upper limits of what he was capable of achieving. You know, so the thing is, so many times he had set, you know, really big challenges for himself, but then he would achieve it and have this feeling, well, I should have tackled a little bit more. Oh, so so would you say it was kind of a gradual growth towards this adventure? Because obviously, not a lot of people have, you know, 
this is really once in a lifetime thing. You, so, you, so you don't have many events this big, adventures this big in your life to go after. So was it uh, just this gradual climb towards really this crescendo of a giant experience? Right. No, it's a really good question because it, it was really um, a, a big jump. You know, I think, and the thing is, it was spurred on by my dad's sep- the separation of my mom and my dad, you know. So up until that time, he had done all these different types of challenges and different things and canoe racing and whatever. But it was that event that set his mind thinking about something that would be really monumental, something that would be just impossible. You know, something so far-fetched that people, when you told them, they would think you're crazy. And he didn't, he wasn't doing it for the sake of that, but he wanted it to be that, except like it to be that crazy that, you know, that if you told somebody, they would be like, you know, you're going to fly to the moon kind of thing. Like, it's just not possible, you know? <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, you, you say it's the separation of your, your parents that kind of spurred this idea or, or gave them the ability to do this trip. Uh, how did your mom feel about this? How did she feel about her two sons going on this two-year-long expedition? So from day one, my entire family, which you'll see, the, my, my dad basically grew up in an Oliver Twist kind of situation. Like he was abused by his mom and dad. They were alcoholics. They used to lock him out of the house in Winnipeg when it was 35, 40 below for hours on end. Um, just insane situation kick him down the basement he had this big scar on the side of his head he didn't even know it was where it was from he met one of his half brothers one time he asked him you know what do you know how i got this scar and he goes oh yeah dad kicked you down the basement one time in your head you, you landed on a, on a saw you know and and so when he was a couple years old or three i think three or something years old the children's aid took him away from his family and he was in front of a, of a judge with his sister who was a year older than him, year or two older than him. And the judge asked my dad, he said, you know, do you want to, you know, do you want to go to this children's home or do you want to go back with your mom and dad? And he said, he said, I don't know. He says, I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm too little to know. And he said, I'll, I'll do whatever my sister says. And his sister Lorraine says, no, no, we're not going back home. We'll go anywhere but there, you know. And so they end up living in this children's home, which was like, it was like Oliver Twist, you know, they had this big giant place in Winnipeg where hundreds of kids were all housed, homeless kids, and they would stuff food down their throats, liver and cod liver oil and all this garbage. And finally he got adopted by this one lady and he was there for a few months and she died. And so he got sent to the children's home and then he got adopted by another, uh, another couple, um, the Roberts family, they were like Welsh and, um, but he was basically told from day one, they said, they said to him, like, you know, you, you do one thing wrong and you're going straight back to the children's home. You know, he had a, he had a, his stepbrother, you know, was kind of, you know, initially wasn't too thrilled about having another boy in the house. So everything my dad owned was in a little shoebox and he had to keep that in a hallway closet. And that's, you know, that was his childhood. And, you know, he just existed. He did like, you know, he, he did with the things that he needed to do to, to, to be a part of the family. He, the last thing he wanted to do was go back to this children's home at that point, you know. He, he said that, you know, the, 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 when, it, when I was a kid, he would say like, you know, the number one thing that I missed when I was a kid was that I never had somebody to give me a, a, a boot in the seat of the pants to say, try, try to do this or you could do this or, or, you know, have you ever tried something like, you know, whatever. You know, there, there was never any inspiration to do anything but 
you know, when there was this in Winnipeg at the time, they didn't have what today we have the thing called the floodway around Winnipeg. I, I, I live in Iowa now, but in Winnipeg there, they didn't have the floodway. And so it's pretty common in every spring, all the runoff that flows north from, from the Dakotas comes through Winnipeg. And they would get flooded all the time. But in the, in the 30s there, they had this, it's a, I'm trying to think what year that was in. It was either late 30s or early 40s. They had this massive flood. And a lot of the city was flooded. And one of my dad's stepbrothers was part of the Winnipeg Canoe Club or the local Kildonan Canoe Club. There. And they had a canoe in the backyard. And so my dad got the idea he's going to jump in his canoe and, and help get groceries for the neighbors. So he gets in his canoe and he starts helping people with the groceries. And he said it was the first time in his whole life that he felt like he was useful and he had some freedom and uh, he felt like something, you know. And that's that was what started his career in canoeing. And so then, you know, his brother being part of this canoe club, he, he joined the canoe club and they started doing some little bits of races and stuff against other clubs. And my dad started winning these races. And it wasn't too long, this guy comes along, his, his name was Bill Brigden, he was an Olympic kayaker, and he saw my dad winning these races, and he was impressed with my dad, and so he came up to me and said, he said, Don, he said, we're going to start training, and next year we're going to go in the Canadian Championships. And my dad was just floored, he couldn't believe it. You know, my dad knew who this guy was, he used to think of, he used to call him a brick something or other, he said, like, muscles all over the place, like, he's, he looks like a builder, you know. But that's that's how he got into canoe racing, and so they became a team, and they they won a lot of really big, challenging races in in uh, in Manitoba. You know, they would go up to the Trout Festival. Americans would come up to the Trout Festival. They had really, really challenging races. They won that race two years in a row. Yeah, that's how he got into it, you know. And so I think for my dad, more than anything, and to the day he died, really, I mean, canoeing was his freedom. You know, it was his peace of mind. He could get out there on the water and puddle around and look for bottles and he was he loved looking for antiques and stuff along the red river and it was just he would get out hours before sunrise practically every single day in the summer and he'd be gone all day and then he'd come back and he'd saw wood and chop woody it's like a wood chopper you know so your your dad obviously had a passion and i, I imagine at some point you know in your childhood especially uh you and your brother were, were roped in on some of these trips or just you know canoeing in general uh, did, did you both have a passion for it as well did, did was it something you enjoyed or just a way to spend time with your dad yeah well you know like for my brother and i like my brother jeff and i canoeing was just something we did like kids would jump on a bike you know it, we, it was such a part of our summers that i don't think we thought of it much different than walking down the street you know like my dad one of his things was that every year he wanted to do something that was memorable that you know, he could look back at each year and say, well, I climbed this mountain, or I, I biked from here to here, or I walked from here, or I swam this distance, or whatever, you know. And, and so when we got to the 11, 12 years old, at that point, I think even when we were around 10, he started having these summer canoe trips. And initially it would be like one or two weeks, you know, and then it would be three weeks. And then, you know, like before our Amazon trip one time, we went way up northern Manitoba, and existed just completely on our own for over a month, you know, with our own food supplies, everything. And that was anything my dad wanted to see, like, you know, can we carry enough food and be healthy and strong for over a month in a canoe, away from all supplies and everything? We had no problem. We came back with food, you know, so he knew we could do that. 
Oh, that's incredible, man. So, so what did your dad do for a living, or how was he able to take off this time off work to do these yearly things as well as uh, eventually the the huge two-year-long Amazon trip? Well, you know, from the way that my dad lived his life and, and including the way we did these trips, the, the good news is that anybody can do that because he, he did everything on a shoestring budget, you know? Like, I think our, our Amazon trip, which was gone, we were gone for two years, I think his entire budget for the two years was a couple thousand dollars. Oh man, I, I've done some cheap trips, but uh, nothing like that. Holy cow! You know, usually the cheaper my trip, what that means is the more discomfort, uh, maybe the less food, and yeah, just overall more, uh, <laughs> more, more uncomfortable situations. Yeah. Well, you know, like the discomfort factor again is something that I grew into. Like my dad was not one for amenities in, in any way. And so from the earliest age, like, you know, sitting in a, in a tent for days and days on end with, with you know, in, in almost freezing temperatures and constant rain and, and just eating very, very basic foods, you know, like, you know, cooking up pots of macaroni and whatever we had, that just became something so normal to me that I, to this day, I, I live like that almost. I, it's not much different. I mean, I can... And like I play classical guitar and I'll go play at the finest weddings and I, I know what a good meal is, but I can go either way. Like I can be living on, you know, roots that are pulled out of the ground and I'm just fine with that too, you know? Oh man, that's really fascinating. Yeah. 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 You play classical guitar, uh, for a living. So uh, in, in, in case folks didn't know that, but, um, that's really interesting, man. Wow. And so for your dad, you know, just, just having a tent for the night compared to his childhood, holy cow, that's a luxury in a lot of ways, having a place to call home. Um, what I want to know is that, you know, when you said you got the idea, you were nine or 10 years old, and then it was another 10 years before you actually left. Uh, where did this idea come from? And, and how did you go about, you know, choosing the route and really committing to doing it so young? And how how was your dad thinking about it, and how are you thinking about it at such an early age? Right. So initially, it, it started off the the initial spark was my first one dollar allowance that I got when I was ten years old. All right. And I went out and I was going to buy a, a chocolate bar, which you know it was ten cents at the time, and I ended up wandering to the back of this little store, and I and I found a, a book rack. They had these little little they called them little big books. And one of the books was Tarzan, and that was my favorite show at the time. And so I started looking through this book, and in the back they had the language, how you could speak to the apes and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I, this is the book I got to get. So I came home, and I, and I started reading this book. And my, even my, at school when I was in grade six, because um, I started school a year early, so I was, I was 10 years old in grade six, and I remember walking around in the, in the schoolyard, and my teachers were like, What's up with Dana? Like normally he's out there causing nothing but mischief and everything else, and now he's wandering around the schoolyard with his his head stuck in his book, you know. But and I remember after I finished reading that book, I said to my dad, I said, Dad, you know what I want to do? I, I said I'm gonna I'm gonna walk to the jungle and I'm gonna live with the monkeys and all this kind of stuff. And and my dad said, he said, yeah. He said, you know, how long do you think it would take you to walk there? You know, like my dad wasn't one to look at something and just laugh it off. Like he loved that kind of stuff, you know, especially coming from kids. And I, and I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, let's let's get the globe. We had a globe because we used to keep a globe in the living room because my dad was big into stamps. And he used to, when he worked at the YMCA, he used to bring me home stamps every single day. And I had to know where all the countries were. 
you know, what continent they were from. We had each book, we had a continent, a book for each continent. I'd have to put the stamps. I had to know which country went to which continent and all that. That's how I got to know a lot about the world was just from collecting stamps, you know, and he would get, working at the YMCA, people come there from all over the world. Almost every day you get stamps from different countries, you know, and so he said, let's get the globe out. And so he brings out the globe and I could reach my little thumb and, and my big and my pinky all the way from Winnipeg to the Amazon. And he says, so what do you think? He says, how long do you think it would take you to walk there? And I said, well, that's a long ways. I said, I think that would take me two weeks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. That's hilarious. And your and your dad, you said, loved it. You know, it, it almost takes it almost takes the imagination of a child, you know, boundless to to even attempt something like this. So I'm I'm sure in a lot of ways he was thinking in the back of his head, just how can we actually do this? Well, yeah, it was the fact that I thought I could get there in two weeks, you know, and and that's what that's what he thought was, you know, but he didn't laugh at that. He, I mean, he knows that I'm a kid and I have no concept of distance. Right. And he's like, you know, if we swap those two weeks out for two years, you know, then we're talking. Right. So then he says, so what are you going to do for food? I said, well, I said, I'm going to, I said, I thought about that. I'm going to raid gardens wall. That's what I thought. It was just like Winnipeg. I figured there's gardens everywhere, you know. And, and what are you going to do when you get to the big rivers? You know, I'm just going to swim across. I, I had no idea. You know. You look at the Amazon at the mouth there, where it goes back out into the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, it's, it's like 150 miles across, and, and, and around Belem area there, a lot of that area is 20, 20 miles across and 30 miles across. And the Rio Negro is 20 miles across. That goes into the, I think these rivers are so massive. You know, you, I think a lot, you know, if you visualize the Amazon when you're a kid, you just think of it almost like this river with crocodiles coming down and vines hanging here and you don't think of it like an inland ocean which is what it really is yeah massive massive ocean in fact you know depending on how you define the source it is the longest river in the world um or it's the nile they're all within what 100 miles of each other but uh yeah it's an incredibly long incredibly challenging river and so so when you look at your route and the route y'all chose uh, you, you know, the Amazon was such so far down your priority list as far as, you know, for, for, first of all, it was the last thing you encountered. It's a huge chunk of the, the trip, but you had so much to contend with before that. The, the entire Mississippi River, uh, literally following around the Gulf of Mexico um, through Central and South America, which seemed really just difficult and then then getting into the this south america going upstream until you connect with the amazon and then going straight east um out to the to the ocean it just seemed like a, a crazy crazy route why did you choose that way to go why the amazon why going all the way down there from home was it literally inspiration of this book and just choosing something that that no one thought was really possible no, you know what it really comes down to, Mason, is that, you know, I, I, when my dad was a kid, you know, he had he had all this, um, he had love of history and, and geography, and, and, and he did a lot of reading about the old explorers. And one of the things that really bothered him was that so many things had already been done. I mean, he really was kind of like an old, uh, he was an adventurer at heart, just like in the, in the old school way, like in the, you know, 1400s. You know, if he, if he had been around in that time, it would be him sailing across the ocean, right? 
And so he was looking at something that would do, number one, he wanted something new, something that hadn't been done. Like nobody had ever gone self-propelled from North America to South America. Nothing that was chronicled, you know. My dad believes that that's how the Indian people did get down there. And he figured out long before anybody was talking about it, because back back when you even when he wrote his autobiography, he wrote about how he had figured out how all the native people got down to South America, and it wasn't how they'd said they did. They'd always said how they came down through the land and all this kind of stuff. And he said that's crazy. There's no way that these native people would have done that. He said the way they got down to South America was following the coasts. It was their only reliable source of food. They could always get food from the ocean. And they didn't have to worry about directions. They just keep going. They just follow the coast. And he said it does not like they were intentionally going somewhere. They would just follow the coast because that was, they could always go forwards and backwards and know exactly where they were. Hey, I mean, that does make sense. Honestly, it, it is easy to know. Keep the ocean on your left or right, like you said. So would you say that's why y'all decided to go after it to, as, a, as a way to retrace those steps or just to do something that just... Just to see how the natives did it, was that a big reason your dad wanted to try? Yeah, that was part of it. Go back and relive all these adventures. Like if you look at Oriana went up the Amazon and Cortez came into Veracruz and all these different, like the Mayans followed along the Yucatan Peninsula. He wanted to experience what all these old, you know, uh, civilizations and adventurers had done. You know, the, uh, Columbus went all along Panama area there and I mean, we go down the coastline, and we're, and it's nothing has changed. You can look out along the coastline. We're paddling down there. And my dad says, you know, this could be the 1400s right now, and and we're Columbus coming down this coast. And this is exactly what he saw. Wow, that's 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 really really cool. Um, you know, I mean, I, I I'll be honest. I don't really know how to approach this interview to to for you know, it's just an hour long interview of something that lasted two years. It's really hard to know exactly what to talk about. And I know it was, you know, 40 years ago, you've done so many interviews. There's been, you know, documentaries and, and, and thousands of news segments probably over this. I mean, I, I, there was a lot in to, to research. There was a lot of information. There's been a book written about it. Um, but, you know, what aspects are there of this that you don't necessarily get to talk about a lot? Something maybe particularly memorable or challenging or uh, just something important to you that you don't necessarily get to mention all too often? Well, to be honest with you, like all, a lot of things we've already spoken about are stuff that I don't think that I've ever talked about before. Some of those earlier things we talked about in the, in the beginning of the interview. Um, and that's that's the funny thing with interviews. You know? And I, I think it, it was a good idea that you haven't read the book. Not It could, it works well either way. But not knowing what the story is, it kind of um, it's more like a mystery to you, you know? And so it, it it's also leads me into different directions, which I think was what kind of you were thinking you know definitely yeah I, I love doing interviews like this um you know it, one i'm not i don't have the time to read every single book and prepare that much but but also it's i feel like it keeps the uh it helps me ask you know more fundamental questions i guess you could say but anyway um you know with, with this trip being 40 years ago man and you know so much has changed in the world so much has changed for you you know, I'm looking at the red line of your of your route that goes from literally Canada down through the coast, all the way down to the U.S., around the coast, down through South America, and out to the ocean from the Amazon River. 
And I just think about all the little micro experiences, the little seasons within that adventure and, and all the anxieties, all the, the corruption you dealt with, all, all the, all the, you know, just crazy amount of interactions with people that, that had no clue how to, you know, conceptualize what you were doing. Um, you know, and I know you had lots of run-ins with, with, uh, drug cartels and were held at gunpoint so much time. There's a lot of sensational stories within your overall adventure. What has been the effect for you with this adventure contemplating over the last 40 years? Like, is it an overall positive thing that you're happy happened? You, you, you thank your dad for, or, or is it, you know, mixed between that and man, that was really hard. That was really, that had a really bad uh, effect on me. Like, how do you feel about it? 40 years looking back? Um, I would say it's 99% positive, maybe maybe 100% positive because I'm still, you know, if I died, maybe I'd have a 1% negative there. But, um, you know, going back to this whole thing about the red line of our trip, you know, going across the, the globe there, um, just I wanted to mention something about that because you know, you it, it's it's so difficult to get a perspective of the size of this planet because most of the time we're traveling by if we're going large distances, we're either in a car or we're in a jet airplane, right? And so, you know, you think of it of a jet airplane, a jet airliner traveling at maybe four hundred fifty, five hundred miles an hour average speed, right? Well, our canoe trip being twelve thousand miles long, that would be twenty four hours traveling in a jet airplane. Another way of thinking about it, a lot of times I get asked to do a talk about this trip. And they say, well, can, can you keep it to under an hour? I say, well, I can. But I said, think about it. That means I'm going to be traveling 20, you know, in, in one hour, I've got to go basically 24,000 miles an hour. I mean, if you put that into perspective, but it, it's kind of a way of, you know, like when you think of these distances, we tend to not think of them that way. But like that's basically what my typical talk is. It's a twenty-four thousand mile an hour talk, and that's kind of what you're saying. Like you know, how do you take this trip and explain it in an interview? Well, you can't, right? You pick little bits and pieces and stuff like that. Um, but you know, when it comes down to uh, to people, I had a I have had a really interesting thought that's very current, and I don't want to get political or anything, but it's kind of hard not to sometimes. But it's just something that's. And you can include this in the interview or you can take it out. It doesn't matter to me, Mason, it's however you feel. But, you know, for years and years and years, because, I mean, we finished this trip back in 1982. And I've been doing talks on, the, uh, you know, slide presentations and talks to people and every imaginable kind of group and organization for ever since we finished that trip, you know. And and one of the common questions I get is, is the question that you asked me just now, which is, about people, you know, like kind of what's your take on people, you know, are people generally good or, you know, because one of the things that, uh, one of the takeaways when a person reads our book is that we had a lot of gun incidents. It's like we had about 13 different times when people put guns to our head to rob us, stuff like that. Walk down the road to be executed in Honduras, lots of problems. But why does that that is so dominant in the book in a way because you know the way that it was edited they were trying to take my dad's 1400 page diary and put it into a 300 page readable book and so they tend to select the most sensational things right but there's a lot of space in between those incidences and all that space is 
the beautiful 99% of the people that we met that treated us like family. And, and that tends to get kind of glossed over a lot, you know. People, I, I remember before we left on our trip, people talk about Mexico. Oh my goodness, well, you guys are fine up until you get to, 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 the, to the border of Mexico. But then once you cross that border, everything's going to change. You know, you got nothing but you're going to get robbed and guns and da-da-da-da-da. Well, it, nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is that the Mexican people treated us like family. And I was like, I mean, my family on my mom's side, my, my, all of my family was on my mom's side. Because my dad, I mean, I didn't even know I had family on my dad's side because he kind of didn't talk about them because of all the craziness that he went through as a kid, you know. So all my family all existed on my mom's side. Well, they all boycotted our trip. They didn't even come down to see us off because they thought it was so stupid. And the only persons that did come down in the final, my, even my mom didn't want, they were basically trying to get us to not go. But in the end, my mom and my sister did come down and wished us good luck, you know. But the rest of the family, they wanted nothing to do with it. And, and they didn't understand it either. They couldn't understand why we're doing it or what the point of it was, you know. But, but you know, you get down there and, and, and then we have the Mexicans treating us like, you know, like we're their long lost family. You know, they'd argue whose house we're going to come into to have a tortilla and something, you know. Oh, it's really, it's really fascinating you say that because doing research on this adventure, it, the, 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 the gun incidences, the near execution in Honduras was so prominently featured. I, it was literally everywhere I read. And, you know, it get, it did give researching it the sense of recklessness. Like people were obviously saying, how could you ever do this you know, adventure? And, and like, why are you doing this and putting yourself at this risk? But in all honesty, you were averaging one incident like that every two months. And, you know, I've had trips with an incident or two like that, that was a week or two long. So, you know, as it averages out, it's doing what you're doing, that's pretty remarkable that it really is 99% of the experiences and interactions are vastly positive, vastly probably just restoring your faith in humanity. Um, but it's also boring. You know, the one reason, the reason news is news is because it's the exception to the norm. And so when you take a two year experience and have to dwindle it down into, you know, a book or a short interview, the sensational stuff, unfortunately, does, you know, get the, the lion's share of the of the talk and of the book. That's very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like, our, you know, my takeaway, one of my takeaways from the trip was that, you know, 99% of people are good. And there's a reason for that, too, because people that are nothing but trouble, people don't want them around. You know, they, 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 they end up getting excluded from society one way or another. And, and you know, the good people... But the world needs good people. They have, like, especially down in Central South America where food is scarce and, and they have, a lot of people have no money. The, the only way they survive is through family and friends, everybody working together, you know, and, and, and that's how people think. And family is huge, you know, like we had people, you know, tying us up, taking us away to shoot us because they thought we were invading or something. And then they realized we're father and son and everything was fine, you know, whose house are you coming for dinner tonight, you know? So a lot of the stuff that we, where, we, where we had guns was a lot of times people not understanding what you know who we were or what we were doing, and we had a lot of times good people after us, 
good people sometimes thought we were bad people and the bad people thought we were good people coming after them. Or So a lot of it is, but you know, you look at, we were gone for two years, all these gun situations, we never got shot. You know, the thing is, if I, was, if I was wandering around the back alleys of Chicago for two years, would I have as much luck? I don't know. Because there's a difference in humanity um, that I find, like in, in the real poor countries, there's, there's a level of compassion and humanity that's so real and so deep-rooted that I, I, I think, you know, modern society and big cities, they can, they can kind of take that out of people sometimes. Like when you look at some of the ruthless people in this world, and there's plenty of them too, they've lost that somehow. You know, either through being abused or whatever, but they've lost that, you know, the, they, they can take another person's life and they don't feel anything. And I never got that feeling very often when we were down. So even amongst the people that had guns to us, I felt there was a human I was dealing with, not a cold hearted person who was going to take my life. So you could sometimes feel that you could feel the fear in a person. And the fear was them not knowing what was going on either. You know, there's a huge difference. You know, here's the thing that I, I that you can either put in or take out, Mason. It's up to you. But it's just something that's occurred to me this year, and I've been thinking about it quite a bit. And I was saying that up until this year, I've been asked so many times about people, you know, especially on our trip, you know, what do you think about, you know, because you had all these problems. And I would, I would always answer that 99% of people are good, right? But I do have a slightly different thought about that right now because of what's been going on this last while. And that is that I still believe that 99% of people are good, but I also have this feeling that a large percentage of, of humans are malleable, that they can be swayed one direction or another by, by leadership. And if you've got a really positive, good leader who wants to march a country in a certain direction to achieve something, whether it's putting a man on a moon or whatever, they can achieve that. But you also have, you know, the, the opposite way that, that people can be twisted other directions. And I find that not everybody is so strong, personally willed that they have their own compass, you know, that people can be swayed. I started doing some research on what happened in Germany during the Second World War. And I was kind of astonished at the, the percentage of people that that went along with something, but they went along with it through fears and all kinds of different things, you know. And, and I, what I'm saying is that, you know, I do believe that 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 there's a natural kind of a, a, a goodness in people. But if you look at Nazi Germany, like why is, was it that such a small percentage of people? Like I say, this is something way off topic, Mason, and I, I you don't have to put any of this in. I'm just talking to you right now on a personal level. But... But, you know, in answer to your question about people, I think it's worth being said. It's a thought that I've had, and it's it's something I've thought about a lot, is that I do believe that 99% of people are good. But when you look at Nazi Germany, you know, it, it, why, why was it that so few people? Well, a big part of it was fear. You know, Hitler was so good at putting fear into people. So people were literally afraid of their life to say anything, to go against what he was doing. There was a resistance. But that resistance was relatively small because most people were so afraid to do anything. You know, anybody that stood up, they got shot, you know. And so, like, when we were on our trip, I would say that most of the people that we met, politics was never in their heart in any which way. I mean, they, they, a lot of the people that we met, there wasn't a road in their community. They never drove anywhere. 
we would, even in as early as Mexico, we would come into the bottom of a mountainside and we would start talking to these people and they'd say, well, where did you guys come from? We say, we're from Canada. Well, they never heard of Canada. We're like, you've never heard of Canada? No, 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 what it is, right? And then, and then we'd say, well, it's right past the United States. Never heard of United States. What is that? You gotta be kidding me. You never heard it. Like you, you live right here. No roads, no cars, nothing. They, they're just a fishing community. They never got anywhere. As early as Mexico, we were meeting people that had never heard of the United States. It seems impossible. Now, here's the flip side of that, Mason, which is also very interesting. When I'm in the sauna at the YMCA, a lot of times I'll, I'll have conversations with people, and people will be like, "Well, I don't, people don't know what's going on." I said, "Well, I said, well, what's what's the next country?" Like I said, I said, "You know that it, that Mexico comes after the United States when you're heading south, right?" I said, "But what's the next country?" In other words. From an American perspective, and being a Mexican, what's the next country that comes after Mexico? Like, as an American, what's the second country? Like, you know, for for a Mexican, where's Canada? Canada being the second country north of them, right? And I'll say to them, what's the second country past the United States? Do you know it's rare, very rare, that I can get an American who can name the second country south of, of the United States? I'd actually challenge anyone listening uh, to try to name the second country south from the United States. Uh, there's Mexico, then what's after that? Let's name that second country. Now, we, I know we have a ton of international listeners, too, um, from all over the world. Uh, we're here you know, in the U.S., of course, but I grew up in Florida, and you know, just 90 miles south of Florida is Cuba. But anytime we ever went anywhere, of course, we drove north. We drove thousands of miles north and west, out west for vacation and, and never even thought about going south, didn't talk about it, uh, j- just even from a point of knowing about it. We really didn't know anything about this place, Cuba or Haiti or Jamaica or anywhere in the Caribbean or anywhere in, in Central America. We never really talked about that, even though it's you know less than an hour plane ride away. It's, it's kind of interesting. Wow. Right. I mean, generally when a person thinks of going south, they kind of visualize it. You know, they know the Panama Canal is down there somewhere. And there's a bunch of these little countries and they're all kind of bunched in together. And then there's South America in the jungle. And I think that's kind of, you know, and, and I mean, that's a generalization. But I'll be honest with you. I mean, most times when I ask somebody, what's that second country? They can't name it. They have no idea. You know, I, I, a lot of times I get the first sec, uh, South American country or something like that. They skip all of Central America or whatever. You know. So uh, in, 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 um, in respect to the Mexican people that are, you know, here we come in this little fishing community. These guys have never gone to school. There's no roads, no radios or anything. How would they know anything? You know, They used to always think we're coming off some ship somewhere. We're shipwrecked. And we're, so they thought Canada was a little island somewhere out in the ocean. And you try to explain to them where you're coming from. Like, you know, where, where are you coming from? Like, what, what are you doing? And then they, the next question would always be, what kind of fish are you catching? You know, like you must be out there fishing, right? Because why else would you be out there? Oh, no, I'm allergic to fish. I can't even eat fish. What? Like, how do you live if you can't eat fish? <laughs> Wait a second. You're allergic to fish? What did you do about that? I mean, that seems like such an obvious uh, food source for this entire time. But you, you couldn't eat fish at all? 
believe it or not, I eat salmon and sardines practically every day because I can eat uh, saltwater fish if it's in a can and completely annihilated through being cooked that way. But I can't eat freshwater. Like, I can't go near freshwater fish and most saltwater fish that, that I'm not familiar with, like different varieties and stuff. I, I try to eat it. I can't. I just get violently ill, you know, like so. I would just, we just ate, I mostly ate all canned goods, you know, so my, my protein was mostly sardines, sardines and salmon and stuff. That is bizarre, man. What a, gosh, what an inconvenience, honestly, through that whole time, not being able to eat something that's so, I, I would imagine, abundantly available. Dang, that's that, I'm sure that's in the book. And so, you know, for folks that haven't read the book, I highly encourage you, uh, your dad, Don, wrote it and... Uh, there's a lot of film, just YouTube some stuff. There's a lot of great interviews and um, just a lot of good information out there about it. And I know we're not talking about a lot of things that a, that an interview would cover, just some stats and overview and all all that. But it, you, man, like forty, you know, forty years now has gone by, and you were so young when you did this trip, nineteen years old. Uh, obviously, finished around twenty one. How do you think this experience changed your trajectory in life? Because, you know, like we just said, young, malleable. Have you ever readjusted back to normal life? And what do you think the lasting impact on you it has had? So, you know, in one way, I feel like I lived about 300 years worth of lifetime in that two years. Well, how can you take two years out of your life to do something like this? And I... You know, in retrospect, I would say that we gained about 300 years by going on that trip because every single day was a new adventure because we're constantly moving south, you know, very different than if you're going horizontal on the planet, you know, where everything is basically at the same latitude. But when you're going straight south every day, which for the most part we were, I mean, the Amazon is parallel, but, you know, almost every day you're going into a completely new environment. So you're literally watching evolution as you as you paddle each day. You're seeing the birds evolve into different species, like, you know, like a crow changing as, as you go day by day. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things, like I, a lot of, of people that are into adventure and, and taking trips and traveling to different parts of the world and all kinds of things, a lot of times they get there by a jet airplane. So they basically leave in a time machine and they're transported to a new, a new world. And all of a sudden, they have to adapt to this completely new world. And everything is thrown topsy-turvy, right? And they adopt to this, and then their, their perspective is completely changed because it's the only way that you really gain new perspective is by all these new experiences. And then they come back uh, through the airplane again a lot of times, and they're, they're teleported back to their old world, and nothing makes sense anymore because they're, they've changed, Right. What's so different about our trip was that we never did that, really. We, we, every single day was, uh, was that one step into the new world. And so we constantly were adapting every single day to this new... Well, by the time we got to South America, it was just like it should be there. You know, the, the, we, 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 we grew into it, you know. So by the time we were there, yeah, of course, the Amazon was there because we came here and we went there and we are here. And I remember coming across... You know, when we, we passed through the, it's called the, the Dragon's Mouth between Venezuela and Trinidad. And Columbus had tried to get through there with his ships and the, the, the currents were so strong it pushed the ships right back out to sea. So we knew that going through there by canoe was going to be a challenge, you know, and we had to get everything timed just right. 
But the weird thing was, was when we came down to the point of Venezuela and we came around the point and we looked across that seven or seven and a half mile gap and I could, we could see Trinidad. And it was just like, you know, I had stamps from Trinidad. And I remember looking at the shape of, of the island, you know, from that perspective, you know. And we could look across there and here's Trinidad. Like it actually is there, you know. And my whole life it was just, a, 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 a you know, a stamp with some tropical birds. And here it is, for real, you know. Sometimes we used to joke about that, you know. We got all these places on a map. Are they actually there? You know, you just see one. You know, we, on our maps in Colombia... Because Columbia is so crazy with all the drug trade and everything. We'd come into a town. I remember we came into this big tourist town and it was all these buildings and everything. And we're, we bought some groceries and we're talking to this guy for a while. He's an American. He can speak English and stuff. And we're like, man, we're talking to him for quite a while. And we said, yeah, we're so glad to be here in Santa Marta. He goes, this is not Santa Marta. We're like, what do you mean? He goes, he says, no, Santa Marta is way around the way around the coast down there. We said, what's this place? It's not even on our map. He goes, oh, no, they don't have that on the map. This is where all the drugs come in. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is wild, man. I, I, I believe it, too. Which is craziness. So I remember one time we had cut across this massive bay called uh, uh, Bahia de Urban, uh, Urba, uh, Urban in Colombia there. And we went across there because we were told that there was a lot of drugs being transported out of there. We get across the other side of this massive bay, and we're following down the coastline. And on our map, it showed there was one little tiny town. And so we were going to try to get down there to see if there was somewhere we could land through the breakers and everything. We get down there, and there's one little shack on the shore. They got this thing marked as a town. And we're like, there's a whole big city that's not on the map, but here this shack is marked as a city or a town, you know. And so my dad says, he says, not much of a town. I said, no. And so we made this joke. We said, Heist Mangley. That's who lives there. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. You know, I, I bet there's just literally a million different little stories like that you could tell us. Um, but I wanted to ask, you, you said you're a dad now, correct? My, my little boy, David, is 10 years old now. So he's exactly at the age when I had read Tarzan for the first time and got my mind thinking about it. And it's hard to believe that it's 50 years ago that, you know, this all started. But, you know, I look back, I could have gone with the chocolate bar. <laughs> wow, that is, that is a crazy way to think about it, how our choices change our trajectory and what, what, what seeds end up growing, you know? What, what if you would have chose that ch chocolate bar? That would have been a totally different life, potentially, so... Jeez. So, you know, now that you're a dad, um, how do you think it's changed the way you look at fatherhood uh, as you think about, you know, your dad was looking at you as you look at your son, David, now at 10 years old? Uh, you know, is, is this type of adventure or size of imagination something you want to encourage in him, something you want to have together or something you want to, you know, maybe in a way protect him from? How, how do you view that? Right. It's a complex, it's a complex thing, you know, um, you know, everybody wants to do their best for their kids, you know, and when I was a kid, I think that there was different things that my dad tried to really get into my head, and, you know, one of them was the value of life, you know, respecting other people. I mean, he would take us up to these northern reserves up in Canada, and Canada, the native people have, have been shunned a lot, 
and treated poorly, you know, and that's been going on for a long, long time. And my dad wanted us to see the native people in their own, in, in a different light. You know, we go up to the reserves and camp out with them and get to know people. And respect was a huge thing for my dad to respect people and, and to, to live in their shoes and to understand them from their perspective. You know, it's so easy to just look at people from your own perspective, but to really try to understand people from what, what, what their world is, you know, um, and health, you know, like your, you know, your health is everything, you know, you don't have your health, you know, your friends, your, all your possessions, everything, it means nothing if you don't have your health. So from an early age, my dad tried to teach me about, you know, eating right and exercising and all those kinds of things. And I've taken that to whole new levels with myself and I'm constantly learning new things and I'm trying to teach my son about that. I'm trying to teach him about the evils of refined foods and all that kind of stuff and, and just really to get him to understand how his body works. And, and, and having positive goals, you know, like my, my dad used to say, you know, it, it's rare that anybody really has a clue of what they're capable of doing. And it's because we tend to set, you know, achievable goals. People don't like to fail. I mentioned that, you know, in different places and in, in things that I do, but I think it's very true, you know, that, that um, we tend to kind of put ourselves into safe situations where we, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, it's survival. It's just human nature to do that. But you know, if you if you stick your neck out a little bit, 99 times out of 100, you find that, that most of the things that you're concerned about, they never happen, just like Twain would say, you know. Um, it just, it, you know, in most cases, when you get into these new situations, that's what's so surprising is that everything feels very comfortable. It's just the thinking about it, that's that, that all your thoughts about what's going to go wrong or all these kind of things. And, I mean, it's natural to do that, but in most cases, when you get actually get out there, like my, people you say, well, Don, what are you guys going to do when you get down to the coast? How on earth are you going to get that canoe out on the ocean? He goes, I don't know. He says, I'll worry about when we get there. He says, we may never even get to the coast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, Dana, that's such a applicable lesson right now, but really anytime, just not to... I, you know, I do that myself. I, I do it all the time. I'll lay in bed at night and build up situations that have, I'll build up a situation and worry about it, have legitimate anxiety over it when it has a, a, a 99% chance of never happening, you know? So it, it'll be, you know, I'll, 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 and then I'll throw four or five of those situations where if they were all to happen, it would literally be as rare as hitting the lottery and I'll get myself worried as if they're all inevitable. And so, you know, with, with an experience this big, you, you had to have that mindset because it's like, you know, what are we going to do when we hit the Amazon, get down to the Amazon? How do we get back? Well, heck, that's a year and a half away. It's a year away, two years away. We really don't have to figure that out right now. And there's not a whole lot we can do about it anyway. So, um, you know, I think that's a great mindset and great, great point of view. Always a challenge. I had severe asthma when we left. The doctors, I mean, they just chastised my dad. They said he was going to kill me for sure. There was no way I could go off on a trip like this that I was going to die. And my dad was absolutely convinced that, you know, two years of exercise would cure me. And two and a half months into the trip, August 17th, 1980, I took the last puff of my puffer, my asthma, like Ventolin, and I've never used a drop of asthma medication since. And I remember, I remember on our trip, like I, it was about maybe four months or five months in, the asthma medicine that I had in my puffer, 
I don't know what happened to it. Like it was a metal canister at the time. It, it was isoprenal. It just, I had, I think I had isoprenal and Ventolin. No, at that time it was just Ventolin. But my Ventolin inhaler was like a metal canister. I don't know what happened, but it just vaporized. There was nothing left in there. I could, I could shake it. I could tell there was no liquid in it whatsoever. But I kept that can, that that puffer with me the entire trip, kind of like a like a like a security blanket. Even though I knew it, there was nothing in there, because I was so paranoid still from all those years of having that spray that if I had an asthma attack, that you know maybe we could crack it in half and then I could get crack it in half and I get one drop out of it or something. But I was just so paranoid about having a split. It never happened. You know, August 17th, I did have a couple little incidents. I remember one time we we passed by some kind of a big smokestack on the Yucatan Peninsula. It was belching out this, this just like like toxic smoke. And I had this severe asthma attack from it. But after we passed by, a couple hours later, I was okay. Gosh, <laughs> this story gets crazier and crazier, Dana. Oh, my word, that is nuts. You know, that I mean, that's a huge risk. That's scary. You know, to think about as as a parent or as 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 having the asthma itself, and I'm gonna have to read the book and and probably have you on again just to kind of a- ask some specific details, ask some specific questions about some of the stuff. But you know, I, I I'm sure one of the reactions you get a lot with with hearing just how overwhelmingly large this adventure was for people, or or something you heard when you first got back was, um, you know, how was your trip, which is. I'm sure it can be frustrating and I'm sure you get a lot of different responses to that, but I mean, how do you even answer that? So, so I, you know, I just appreciate you being on and, and talking about just a little snippet of what this was like. Oh yeah. It's funny. Cause as the years go by, like sometimes, you know, I'll be in a group of people or something and some of you know about the trip. Somebody will say to somebody who's a canoeer or whatever, they'll say, you know, this, this guy, you know, he paddled to the Amazon. Now, you get you get you get kind of two you know extreme responses. One response would be, "Oh, that's cool. I went canoeing one time," and and then there's the other, there, there's the other response which is, "What? Where where did you go?" Like like in other words, and then some people like you could I could tell by their questioning in two seconds that they're like, "This is just a bunch of BS, right? There's no way that this is real. Like how?" You know, and the funny thing is I've grown to really actually appreciate the second response better because it says a lot more about somebody who's aware of the distances and thinking about it and, and looking at it as, a, as aside from just sort of like blowing it off as, you know, a weekend trip, you know, like how could that be, right? So it's an interesting thing, but... It's all it's all interesting because either way, people it, it changes the way they think. You know, if, if they ask you questions, you know, you start talking about stuff, and you can see their all their brain molecules are realigning. Well, you can now refer them to uh, this episode to get to get a little more information if they're wanting more. Um, but gosh, man, Dana, thank you so much for joining. This has been an incredible story about the longest ever canoe trip ever. It's it's pretty awesome to talk to you. So, uh, is there anything else you wanted listeners to know before we uh, before we end the conversation? Just a very simple thing, Mason. You know, for every anybody who's listening to this interview, my dad would just say one simple thing, and it's the same thing I would say: is life is incredibly short. You never know what's around the bend tomorrow. If there's something that's really important to you, 
that really, really matters, something that's been on the back burner, something you've thought about maybe for years. Sit down today, today, not tomorrow. Get a piece of paper, start mapping out a plan. When you're going to do this, how you're going to do it, how many steps is it going to take, make a plan and set a date and do it. Because if you don't, it will just disappear. Uh, like the, when we went to the Amazon, I knew, even though I was a young kid, I, I knew that that was going to be a time to do it. I, I'll never have the opportunity to do that again. You know, I, I wouldn't have, like my dad, you know, I relied on my dad so much, his, all of his communion experience and all of his knowledge about survival and different things. We were a great team, you know, we kind of balanced each other out. I was young and more fearful about things and I would kind of pull him back at times when I think we needed to. But these times they come and they go, you know, you know, one day you're going to be 95 or 100 if you're lucky and you're not going to be climbing up, you know, 20,000 foot mountains, you know, maybe, you know, if you take really good shape of yourself, you still could, but you know, there's, there's times when you can do things and the time is now. Mm. No truer words have ever been spoken. Y'all heard them. Get out there, get some paper, start jotting down a plot. Heck, I man, I got some I got some things I need to start jotting down. So Dana, thanks again for being on. Um gosh, what a what an awesome story. What a great experience. And uh yeah, thanks for continuing to tell it so many years later. And uh yeah, we'll we'll probably have you back on again and talk about something else. You've done a lot more adventures, so we will have to have you back on. But Anyway, thank you. Very cool. No, I really appreciate you taking the time to even be interested, Mason. It's fantastic. And to all, all your listeners and everything, you know, just my, the bottom of my heart, I wish you the very best, safe travels, and that's fantastic, you know? Thanks, Dana. Have a great one. All right, Mason. You have a great day. Nice talk. All right. See you, man. Talk soon. Bye. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.